It's good to be back here with you all. This is our second year here. <clears throat> so grateful to Grace Bible Church. You guys are an amazing church, a hospitable church. We love you guys. <clears throat> and we're just glad to be here. My name's Chris, and um, we're from Brian Bible Church here on the Central Coast. And I'm just going to bring the word here by privilege here that Pastor David invited us back. And I'm glad to be here with you all. <clears throat> and it's been a full week already. I, I think you would agree with me about humility. But before I talk, I just want to ask the Lord to bless our time here. So would you pray with me as we go before him in his word? Father God in heaven, you're great and we are not. God, you alone are holy, worthy, righteous, and good. And for some reason, Lord, You've called us into yourself by the work of your son, not so that we can be lifted up, but it's for to the praise of your glorious grace. And may we see that this evening in Jesus name. Amen. Well, my topic, my assignment here is <clears throat> humility in light of our salvation, humility in light of our salvation. And we've been talking a lot about humility, obviously. But we don't, I don't want you to think that humility is something that's a virtue or a trait that we're just choosing just randomly. Because in a sense, humility is essential to the call of salvation. I want you to hear that. That when you came to Christ, believer, you were humble. Now, we aren't humble perfectly. But understand that the call of salvation demands humility. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He begins the Sermon on the Mount with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That blessed are those who are essentially spiritually bankrupt. That when you come to Christ, you don't come to him wealthy in a sense. You come to him broken, with nothing in your hand. And you realize he, his righteousness, is my only hope. He says, not only blessed is the poor in spirit, but blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, who weep over their sinfulness. Why? For they shall be comforted. You see here how humility is not just some random thing we're talking about here, but humility demands that you see Christ as good. That you come to Christ empty. You come to Christ broken. You come to Christ having nothing. And Christ says, I'll give you everything in me. So I want you to see humility is essential in coming to Christ. You must bow the knee. And because you come to Christ, believer, in our quest, in our growth for humility, we must look to Christ as our example in our growing humility. If you want to grow in humility, you must look at Christ. How much does scripture talk about Christ's example of humility for us. Think of Philippians chapter 2. Let's think of Jesus. Though he was existing in the form of God, yet he didn't consider the equality with God something to be grasped. But instead he emptied himself. He emptied himself, making himself coming as man, as nothing, as dust. He came as man. And then what did God do? He lifted him up. You look to Christ. Right. And then Peter, Paul says in that same chapter, you need to have the same mind of Christ. So you need to be humble like your savior was humble. He was humble 
in a sense that brought you to salvation, that because Christ humbled himself, we can come to the throne. You look at first Peter chapter two, when it's speaking of Christ who suffered for us. And as he suffered for us, it says that Jesus himself kept entrusting himself to God. I know everyone in this room can at least relate with relate with one thing. We've all suffered to some degree, to varying degrees. We've all had pain, heartache, difficult days. But what did your savior do when he suffered? He entrusted himself to God. He was humble. But even in our quest for humility, as we grow in humility, see, believer, that this is an ongoing, never-ending plight for us, that we must grow in humility. Why? Because your Savior was humble. Because of who he is. Because of what he did. Because of what he's gifted you. And because of all that Christ has given to you. Because of all that God has given to you in Christ, forgiveness of sins, an an eternal inheritance, because of all that he's given to you, should we boast? Are you great? Are you worthy? But Christ made you worthy. We should echo hallelujah. Thank you that you took nothing and made something because of the work of your son. So we must grow in humility, believer. This is really a family talk for here, okay? That for those who are in Christ, who have repented of their sins, who have trusting in the perfect work of Christ, this is a family talk because we all need to grow in humility. This is all of us in Christ. And so the question remains, and how do we grow? If this is essential, how do we grow? If you pursue humility, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if you pursue just one thing, pursue humility, I guarantee you that your walk with Christ will be sweet. I guarantee you that your life will be sweet in Christ if you pursue humility. But still the question remains, what does that look like? What does this mean? What does this mean for us? How do we pursue and grow in this humility? Because look here, some view Christianity as two things oftentimes in error. Sometimes we view Christianity as just my way to happiness. That because I'm a Christian, then life should be easy. It should not be that difficult. I shouldn't face this, these difficult situations in my life. Because what about Christ who, who loved me? Doesn't this God love me who made me? You talk about this God who loves, and yet I don't feel loved by this God. So why shouldn't I be happy? We either view Christianity as a a means to happiness or we view Christianity as drudgery. That if I come to Christ, then that means I have to give up everything fun. I have no life. That all my life is going to be just boring and difficult and hard. And you see, both of these errors are wrong because it misses the point that we're looking at Christ as a genie. That what can I get from Christ? And if I don't get what I want, how do I respond? Pridefully. And these both are an error. So what would you do if I told you that I had the secret to joy ever after? Whether you got ups or downs in your life, whether sad or happy, you can have true joy. But you will never experience that true joy until you follow Jesus humbly. 
Humility, it's been said already, but humility, in essence, it loses sight of self and it finds it's all in God. Humility loses sight of self and it finds it's all in God. And we must unpack that because it's rich words there. But let me ask you this evening, how big is your God? How big is your God? Because the answer to that question will automatically tell me what your humility looks like. It's a hard question. Think about how big is your God? A big God, big humility. I mean that. How big is your God? Because humility is great in the presence of God. Humility is great in the presence of God. And can I say something here? Because here's the reason. This is what messes with our humility. This is what messes and impedes and stops and hinders our humility. Is we subtly think that life is about us. That life is about me and how I feel and what I think and what I want. Now, I'm going to illustrate this way and don't get offended. But for my one-year-old, my youngest, Judah, he now, he finds my cell phone. And I guess he sees his daddy on it probably too much sometimes. But now he, he sees the cell phone, he runs for it, and he wants to grab it. He puts it up to his face, or he like tries to do it. And he gets so happy when he has my cell phone. But you know what? He's one years old. He doesn't need that cell phone. So what I do, Judah, I give the phone to daddy, listen and obey. And he doesn't always listen, so I have to take it out of his hands. And guess what that one-year-old does when I take that phone? Like a fire alarm in the house. He's screaming. He's mad. And why is this one-year-old mad? Because I took something away from him that was so important to him. And essentially what happens in life is when we lose humility, God may be taking something that is so important to you in your life. And how do you respond? How do I respond when God takes something that I must have? God, why? And you may not even say, God, why? But you may say, Mom and Dad, why? That all of the the pictures, all of of your aggression goes because you lost something that is so important to you. That humility is lost. Why? Because I'm big. What I want is big, right? That what, what I must have right now is big and important to me. And because I don't have it, because things are not going my way, I do not like it. And so I'm going to scream and set off the fire alarm too. That's what we do. That's, that's honesty. And look here. This is not like a, a judgment talk. Like, here's Chris going to just point fingers at y'all. Look here. You want to know someone who needs to grow in humility and has two thumbs? All right, this is, like, I got, I got much growth to do in humility. All of us do. So don't hear this as of like, this is your problem, right? Hey, this is our problem. <laughs> now let's look at how we can grow in this. Because this is something that is so essential, that young believers struggle to be humble because we don't realize how big our problems are in our eyes, how big your desires are, how big your wants are, how big everything else in your life is except God. Like, that's why we struggle, because there's so many things in our life that battle for our hearts. And when Christ is not at the center, when everything else in your life is big, humility is small, and your God is small. Can I ask you this test here? 
What is your disposition when difficulty arises in your life? How do you act when things get hard? Does anger rule your heart? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? What about hopelessness? Maybe some in here battling hopelessness continuously. Are you feeling like there's just no point? Like, why am I here? Are you disgruntled at life or people? Do you feel isolated? Do you feel alone? What about your heart? Have you allowed yourself to become lukewarm? Bitterness. Does bitterness take your heart? Like, what are you marked by? Your problem may not be what you think it is. Believer, your problem may be humility. It could be how big is your God? That our problem is not what it seems to be, but the problem may be my own pride. That what I want has ruled my heart. Would you turn your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5? 1 Peter chapter 5. Now we're coming to the middle of this book and really actually toward the end of it. And in this book here, Peter is writing to Christians who have been dispersed all throughout Asia Minor. And a lot of the reason that they've been dispersed is because they've, in, in, uh, they've endured persecution. That they were being persecuted by others because of their faith, and so they had to spread. And Peter here is writing to these believers. Now, the dating of the writing, we can't be exactly sure, but it could be either right before AD 64 or right after, right around that time when the persecution of Christians rose to a height under this wicked ruler named Nero. This wicked ruler just wanted to crush Christians. He hated Christianity for various reasons. Christians were already affiliated with the Jews because they thought they go hand in hand. And so they're already despised. And then even more now, they're facing persecution. And so Peter now is writing to believers who know Christ, love Christ, called out by Christ, and yet now are suffering. Perhaps thinking, where is God? How do we respond in difficulty? Now, their suffering in this context here is beyond just the, the suffering we go through day by day, but their suffering was intense suffering, suffering in the form of persecution. Oh, you believe Christ? You believe Christ? They're going after them. This is intense persecution. Now, why is it important for us to know? Because if Peter has promises for people whose lives were on the line, that they could die for what they believed, I think we have hope in the midst of our suffering, no matter how small, no matter how great. That he is giving great promises to these believers. And essentially, the time and time throughout First Peter, a command that's reiterated in, in, in various forms is this one thing. Believer, humble yourself. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. He says it time and time again. And it's been already mentioned this, this, the past, I think yesterday, is that humility. What are we talking about humility? That essentially, I think we can say that humility is this, bowing down in your heart. That humility, what are we talking about? Is It's simply bowing down in your heart. Now, what does that mean, to bow down in your heart? That you're essentially, you're saying, Lord, not my way, but your way. And Lord, whatever you have for me, I will bow down to what you have for me. That humility is essentially saying, God, your way. 
Now, you hear that. Isn't that a strange exhortation to give to someone who's suffering? Think about it. If you were suffering, you came up to, to me or Pastor David or Pastor Spencer, any, if you came up to any of us with your problems and you were just having a hard time, hard life, and the first thing we said to you was, humble yourself. Humble yourself, bro. Right? Like, like you'd be like, what? What's compassion? Isn't that weird to say to someone who's suffering that to humble yourself? But yet, that's where he brings it to because he knows the need of us in our suffering, when we are, are grieving, when things are hard in our life, and I just can't explain it. I don't know what's going on. Like, where is God? What do I do with my life now? What we need to hear is I need to be humbled before God. Because this God of heaven who made you and loves you and sustains you wants nothing more for you than for you to be fully satisfied. And how can you be fully satisfied? bowing down before him, and he'll give you everything that you need. And in order to bow down, why would someone bow down? Like, why would we bow down? Like, what's the point of that? Someone who bows down, think of the context of royalty, is someone who bows down, they bow down because they realize whom they're standing in front of. They bow down because they've seen royalty. And so if we're talking about humility, we're talking about greatness here, the greatness of humility and the essence of it. Andrew Murray, I think he's been quoted a lot already. He probably will be even more. But Andrew Murray said this, that humility is the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. I want you to hear that, that humility is the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. So what do we need in our humility? That we need in our humility not to see my problems, not to see my struggles, but I need to see God and all that God is. I need a big view of God. And so if we want to pursue and grow in this, we need to see God. And so let's look at the instructions here that Peter gives these believers. First Peter chapter 5, look at verse 6 with me. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Believer, what we need here, I want us to see, are three instructions for walking humbly after the Lord Jesus Christ. Three instructions for walking humbly after the Lord Jesus Christ. Three instructions. And now when I say here, for walking humbly after the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want us to hear the wrong thing here. Because we hear walking humbly after the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then some may say, well, I'm going to walk after Christ, but I'm going to walk however I want. But walking after Christ, you cannot walk after him if you do not walk after him humbly. 
You hear that? It's one and the same. Walking after Christ is walking after him in humility because you realize how great Christ is. You realize how good he is, and you realize your need of him. And so walking after him, if you are not bowed down, you aren't walking after him. You're self-deceived. So we, I want us to look at these three instructions for walking humbly after the Lord Jesus Christ. The first instruction here is what we need here is to trust God's plan. Trust God's plan. Verses 6 and 7. Because what does it mean to be humble in life? Here's the hard pill to swallow. There was a book that came out about 20 years ago. It's full of bad theology. But there's one point in this book that had like one thing right. And he started off with this. It's not about you. It is not about you. And that... It's true, because humility begins there. It is not about me. Like, how much am I looking about me, what I want, what I'm going after? Humility is not about you. When things don't go your way, are you going to grumble like an Israelite in the wilderness? Or will you trust God's plan? you got to trust God's plan. Now, I was raised in the California school system, like probably many of you, or maybe homeschooled or not, but I was raised in the California public school system. So pray for me, extra hard. But I don't know about you guys, but if you're in school, I don't know if they still do this, but one of the things they do in school are the the many drills you have to do. And one of the drills that you had to do was the earthquake drill. And you want to do the earthquake drill. Now, you remember the earthquake drill? This way tell us is that in case of an earthquake, this is what you got to do. There's an earthquake that happens. They're going to set up the alarm, and you need to go under your desk, and then you'll be safe there. Now, as I look back on that... And I think about the desk that I had, and I consider the beams over my desk. I really wonder, is this desk going to protect me from a beam that falls down? Like, if I am supposed to humble myself and trust that this desk made of fake wood, probably plastic, is going to protect me from a steel beam. Like, that's essentially what you're telling me. So, So go into the desk and you'll be safe. And so when we hear Peter's words here, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We hear that and we realize God is all powerful. God knows all things. God is good. But yet, do we really believe that every single burden in your life is under God's mighty hand? Do you really believe that no matter how difficult, no matter how stressful, no matter how painful your life is right now or what's ahead, do you really trust God's plan for you? Because the test comes is when the wave hits, how do we respond? Because when he says here, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, he's not saying humble yourselves under something that might protect you. That God's hand 50-50 holds you up. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying trust God's plan in the sense that, you know what, you got good odds with God. No, 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 no. He's saying humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, we can gloss over it, but the term mighty hand of God was used in the Old Testament time and time again, speaking of God's power, God's providence, God's provision over his people. It's used how God brought them out of Israel, out of Egypt, with his mighty hand. The Deuteronomy chapter 9 reminds us of that. When, when Moses says, I prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord God, do not destroy your people when he's pleading for them. Even your inheritance, 
whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. With a mighty hand. And in time, you can look at Ezekiel, this passage after passage, speaking of God's hand used in mighty power, bringing his people. It's used in disciplining his people when they misbehaved and went after idols, that God's mighty hand disciplined them because they were his children. That God's mighty hand sustained them. So when Peter here is telling us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he is certainly has in mind here how God's mighty hand has kept all of the saints thousands of years beforehand. That when the mighty saints went up against impossible circumstances, when their lives were at stake, when they didn't know what to eat, when they didn't know what was going to cover their head, that God's mighty hand sustained them. Can God's mighty hand sustain you now? Is he good? Like, is your God big? Do you see God's mighty hand over your life? Do you trust his plan that every single thing, every detail in your life is a product of God's sovereignty? That he knows every single thing you're going through. And believer in Christ, if you've trusted your soul to this Christ, do you believe that everything in your life is good? Do you believe, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for the good? Do you agree with Joseph in Genesis 50.20 that what you meant for evil, God meant for good? Do you see this mighty hand, this God who is so good that no matter what is at stake here, I can humble myself under his mighty hand. I don't know how you showed up to camp this week. Because look here, I know some of you showed up with heavy burdens. Some of you showed up with painful homes going on. Some of you showed up with just sins that you're struggling with. Some of you showed up with these painful relationships. I don't know how you showed up. But God's mighty hand is sufficient. And you have to trust his plan. That it may not work out how you desire it to work out. But everything he does is good. And Peter would say, we must bow down and trust his plan. Trust his plan. I think I told this illustration. I was preparing this, and I got like deja vu in a sense. That's real. But I was like, did I tell him this last year? If I did, you're going to hear it again. But I, I remember in uh, sixth grade, I had this teacher, Mr. Harper. And man, Mr. Harper. <sighs> Mr. Harper was a teacher in, in my own just sinful flesh I did not like. And I would get detention after detention all the time because it was just, just ridiculous things. Like I remember one time he was like, Chris, stop looking out the window at the playground. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> Chris, detention. I'm like, ah. I'm like, you kidding me? And that was just like one of like 10 detentions. And I remember after one time I got detention, I thought my dad was going to like whoop me or something. I'm like, oh, I'm in for it now. And instead of disciplining me, my dad told me, he was like, Chris, if you don't learn how to deal with the Mr. Harpers in your life, God is going to keep giving you Mr. Harpers until you learn. And that stuck with me. I'm like, whoa. And let me tell you, I had no more Mr. Harpers. And, you know, if I did, it, I don't even remember because I submitted. I realized, you know what, I got to stop buckling here. I got to submit. That is not about me. That we, when God gives circumstances in your life, it is not to crush you. It's not because God hates you. It's not because God is trying to just crush you and make your life difficult. It's because he loves you. He has a plan. And his plan for you, believer, is to perfect you, which we'll see here. 
But look how he says here, we're here to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. But, but look what he says here. How are we going to humble ourselves? Like, how are we going to humble ourselves? Now, look at your Bible. It says, humble yourselves. And look what verse 7 says. It's an I-N-G word in my translation, New American Standard. He says, casting all your anxiety on him. You, hear, you catch that. So he, the command there is to humble yourselves. Now, we must ask, how do I humble myself? Yes, I must bow down before God in the circumstance. I must trust his plan. But look how he's saying here. How do I trust his plan? By casting all of my cares upon him. You, you humble yourselves by realizing I got problems. I got stresses. So what do I do with them? You can do one of two things. You can bear your burdens or you can cast them. The prideful person, the prideful heart says, you know, I'm just going to deal with this. You know how I'm going to deal with this? By anger, by attitude, by my speech. I'm going I'm to change things here. But the prideful heart says, me, I'm going to fix this. The humble heart who trusts God's plan says, I'm going to cast my care. Lord, what are you doing in this? Help me to respond and walk in a way that pleases you. Because I, I don't feel right now, the God, that you're good. I don't feel that, that you're loving. But I know in faith that your word says that you are working for the good. So I will trust you and I will cast my care upon you. And you know why I'm going to cast my care? What did he say right after that? Why am I going to cast my care? Look at your Bible. Why am I going to cast my care upon you? Because you care for me. I'm going to cast because you care for me. So in other words, we can ask it this way. If I am not casting my cares, if I am being anxious about my problems, if I am worrying about my problems, that's a sign that I'm battling pride. That if I'm not casting my cares to God who knows me and loves me and I know his plan is good, if I am worrying in anxiety, I'm really dealing with pride here. But the humble heart will cast their cares upon him because he cares for you. Now hear me. This is simple, basic words here that he cares for you. But I don't think we really believe and understand the depth here. That God is saying he cares about you. Have you thought about that? That God cares about the grief in your life. He cares about the struggles in your life. He cares about every single detail. He cares. Now, I've used this illustration before. Now, you guys probably can relate to it as I related to it when I was your age. Is that when every time my, my grandpa would pick me up from school, he would pick me up sometimes and he would say, hey, Chris, so how's your day? I was like, fine. And every day, how's your day, Chris? Fine. Okay, Chris, how's your day? Fine. And then one day my grandpa was like, you know what? I got to go back to school because it's just fine, fine, fine. Because <laughs> that's all I would give him. And, and I knew my grandpa cared about my day. But let's be honest. I didn't care that he cared. I, I, I didn't care that he cared about my day because, you know what, I really want to just work my day how I want to work my day. I don't care that he cares about my problems because, really, it's about me and my way. And so when our parents ask, like, well, well, how was your day? How was camp? What's the first thing you see in the car? Good. Uh, what'd you learn? Humility. <laughs> what else? Pride. <laughs> uh, uh, did, you, did you have any friends? Yes. <laughs> What's their names? I don't remember. 
like, like, I just don't care that you care because, you know, my life is my life. But here, God is saying here, cast your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Cares for you. You trust his plan, believer, because you realize he's good and he cares about you. And so, therefore, I will cast upon him. This ought to be an encouraging motivation for you that God cares for you. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 26, he's talking about the lilies of the field. He's talking about the sparrow, the birds in the air, that God cares about the birds. Like the birds get fed. The lilies, right, they sway, that they get fed, they get clothed. Like he's all these things, these small, minuscule things in creation that God is caring for. And so, of course, you made in the image of God, his son whom he redeemed, his daughter whom he loves and washed with his blood. He cares for you. You must trust his plan and submit to it. This is our disposition before God. But now we must ask, what about your disposition and your heart before your enemy? Because we know we should submit to God's plan. It may not be easy. But what about the constant attacks that are designed to draw you away from this God who is sovereign? If you don't realize that you're in a spiritual war, if you don't realize that you're in a spiritual battle for your heart, for your affections, for the things that you love, for the things that you take, take, make time for, if you do not realize that there is a battle over your affections, believer, you're losing this battle. That there is a constant struggle over what you will love and pay attention to. You're engaged in a war. And yes, you will suffer because of situations in your life, but you will also suffer from people and things that come in your life as well. And so therefore, because you're engaged in a war, our second instruction is you must trust God's promises. You must trust God's promises. Because one strategy of the enemy is to get you to not see that there's a war. He wants you to see that there is not a battle. And one reason I think we do not realize that there is a battle is because all of the problems in your life, they appear to be visible. You catch me? That the reason why we don't see that there's a spiritual battle going on is because all of the problems in your life appear to be visible. Like, no, no, my problem is not a spiritual enemy. My problem is my parents. No, no, my problem is not a spiritual enemy. My problem is my, my friends. Like, they're, they're out of me, out their circle. They're all this drama. My problem is my siblings. My, my problem is this neighbor. I, my, all my problems are these things. My problem is this sickness. This problem is X, Y, Z, you name it. All the problems in our lives appear to be visible, what you can see. And so, therefore, that's my problem. And that's exactly where the enemy wants you, where you think that your problem is someone else. It's horizontal when really the battle is against a spiritual enemy, ultimately. And, yes, you will battle your flesh. You'll battle the world, but you got a spiritual foe, and this foe came for blood. He wants blood, because look what he says here. Because it's true, Peter exhorts them, you are to be sober spirits, be of sober spirits, and be on the alert. That your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That your power or your struggle here, your problem is not a visible one, but it's oftentimes spiritual. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 reminds us that our struggle is not against 
flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That this is a spiritual fight with a spiritual enemy. And this enemy would love to get you to turn your eyes away from the greatness and the grandeur of God and to turn your eyes on all of your problems. To see how big your problems are, how big people are, how your fear should be in people, how your fear should be about what's going to happen, how your fear should be how your life is going to be played out. He would love to turn your eyes away from the greatness of God till you look at it down here. Because look how your enemy is described here. You see how he's described in verse 8? He's described as an adversary, which literally means an opponent in in a lawsuit. He's an opponent. He's going after you. He says, your adversary, the devil, in other words, one who slanders, that the devil slanders God's children. But even more, he's described here as an animal. And what animal is he described as? A roaring lion. The Satan here is described as a roaring lion. And why is that? Because he desires to devour you. He wants blood. Think about Peter. When Jesus said to Peter, and Peter says, you know, basically Peter was like, Jesus, I'm going to ride or die for you to the grave. I'm going to go down, right? I'm with you, Lord. And what does Jesus tell Peter? Peter, Peter, Peter. (laughs) Peter, before the rooster croaks three times, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times, he says. But you know, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. He wanted to devour him. And that same enemy that came after uh, Peter wants to come after you. And yet, no, Satan is not going to come after you personally, likely. But Satan, there are many demons. There's a spiritual warfare. There's a battle going on. And it's going after you, beloved in Christ. That they want to attack and devour you. And how does he devour? How does Satan devour? You ever think about that? Like, how does Satan devour? Here is one of the primary ways that Satan devours. Here's how he works. He wants to devour God's children by deceiving them. If he can deceive with lies, then he's won. If he can get you to believe a lie about yourself, about your relationships, about your circumstances, a lie about who God is, a lie about what you need. If he can deceive you, he's devoured. Because what happens when we believe a lie? Our eyes come off of the greatness of God and we believe the promises that are not true. We believe lies. One of the primary ways that he devours is by deceiving. He deceives his victims and yes, even Christians. At the same time, we shouldn't be obsessed now with looking for satanic satanic workings in the world here. I'm not going to sit around like, oh, is this a spiritual detector? Oh, that's Satan right there. Oh, Oh, that's a demon of depression. That's a demon of poverty. Like, that's not what we're called to do. But we must be mindful to realize that our flesh wants to deceive us. We have an enemy that wants to deceive us. And everything in the world, if you haven't realized it, on TikTok, on Instagram, on every social media platform, is designed to get you to believe lies. 
Because if you can believe a lie about what a woman should look like, what a man should look like, what sexuality could, should look like, if you believe those lies that are all over the platform, if you believe those lies, it affects how you think, how you act, what you love, what you go after, what you prioritize, and what you ultimately think God is. That there are lies everywhere that are demonic, and essentially, that they want you to believe lies about yourself. And that's why we get wrapped up in this world of just lies because it's what's being propagated for everywhere around us, on commercials, on TV, it's everywhere. That they want to instill just wicked propaganda at kindergarten because then they become desensitized at it from a young age. It's wicked. But we have an enemy. But what are we supposed to do? He says here in verse 9, what do we do? If this is true, I don't want you to walk away in fear. I do not want you to walk away questioning how am I going to now live this life because there's hope for us. Yes, we must trust God's plan, but we must also trust God's promises. And what does that look like in this context? Look at verse 9 because what do we do with this devouring lion? It says you resist him. Resist him. Now, what does it mean to resist this devouring lion? Let me ask you this. If you went out to a safari jungle in Africa and you saw a roaring lion, would you go stand head to toe with a devouring lion? Would you go? He's just roaring. man. You can hear a, a roar of a lion five miles away. Like the, a, a roaring lion, king of the jungle, would you go toe to toe with a lion? A hungry lion. No. But if you were standing inside of a military tank, would you go toe to toe with a lion? Gladly, like one button, like <laughs> gladly, like come at me, lion, like gladly. And you know why? Not because you're so powerful, not because you're so great, not because you're so strong, but that tank that you got to take out anything. So when he says resist him, how do you resist him? It says right after that, resist him firm in your faith. You resist lies by standing on truth. And that there is no other truth but God's truth. And there is no other truth that can sustain you through lies than God's promises. What does God say about you? What has God promised you in his son? What has God said he will give to you? You resist lies by truth. You stand on God's promises. That God's promises, not one of them has failed. And so you oppose him, literally resist means to oppose, you oppose him with truth. And so because he works in deceit, you oppose him with truth, being firm in it. If Listen, if you're not grounded in God's truth, you are at risk of being devoured. That even believers here, being devoured does not mean losing your salvation, but being devoured here means being deceived and suffering in lies. So that now you believe lies and you're pain in that and you're suffering in it because you cling to lies rather than truth. And so believer here, we must trust God's plan, but you must rely upon the promises of God. That when you want to go to war with all of the lies that are warring for your affections to what you should believe about yourself, about your circumstances, how do you go to war with these things when you're just a mess in your heart, when you're in your room by yourself, nobody knows what you're really like behind closed doors, but God sees, God knows, when you feel alone and destitute, what will you run to? Will you try to find solace in what the world offers? Let me just go to this social media. Let me just go to my friends. Let me just text this guy. Let me just text this girl. Let me go on this website. Will you run to lies and go deeper into death? 
or will you run to the promises of God that are sure? What will you go to? Do you trust God's promises? Is he great? Is he good? If you know him in Christ, if he has washed you with his blood, if he sustained you, will you go anywhere else but God? And how often does the world and the enemy want to pull you away to anything else but the goodness of God? But once you've tasted of his goodness, if you have tasted of his goodness, if you have tasted of his goodness, if you've seen that Jesus is good, if you have seen that for yourself, not because your parents told you so, not because you heard the pastor talk about it, but if you have tasted and seen that Jesus is good, then I don't care what you're going to, go to the well that will never run dry. That Jesus is good. And so you trust his promises, being firm on the promises of God. Believe this God who has saved you, believer. You may be at a point where you're drifting off and nobody knows, but I want you to hear, believer, if you've been washed in the blood, I don't know what you're hearing, what the influences are in your life, but you have to hear this. The only way to, be, to win this battle is to stand in God's promises. You hear me? God's promises. And the believer who has tasted and know God's promises in the saving of their faith, they would see his God's promises and they'll say, this is good. This is what I needed. Oh, yes, I was deceived. But this Christ who loved me, who laid down his life for me, who bore the wrath of God for me, who rose from the grave for me, who's coming back for me. This Christ is so faithful when my faith is weak and he is good and he knows the pain that I'm going through. But I know this Christ to be good. You got to trust God's promises. But even more, look how he coats this in verse 9. Because he says here, as they're suffering now, he says in verse 9 that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished in your brethren who are all around the world. You hear that, and we just gloss over that, but that is a comfort, believer. He says here, as you're suffering, the same sufferings that you're going through, it may look different in each person's life, but essentially the same sufferings are being, he says, accomplished, being perfected in the brethren, which is a community of believers. This is a tight group of people are being perfected around other believers around the world. So what does that tell us? It tells us that, yes, life is hard. Yes, you may be battling But this is God's plan for his people, and you're not alone. This is why the church is so sweet. I think, this is, I think every generation says this, but I think persecution is coming to America. I don't know if it'll be next year or in 20 years, but the writing's on the wall. It's coming. And when it comes from the top down, the church is going to be a sweet aroma to the believer. You know why? Because it's going to be the only place where I know this is my true brother and sister. This is who loves me. Like, like we're deceived to thinking my true friends are the ones here where I can be cool. Like, I'm deceived to thinking my true hope is outside the church. Those are my real friends. But what we're going to find here is a church is going to be purified. The fake believers will scatter because they're going to be scared of the persecution. They don't want to be identified with Christ. But the true believers will be at church, and they will see that this church here is a sweet haven for me. So that's why we should even view even our youth groups, this youth camp, as a sweet haven for us. I need to be recharged with other believers who are at other churches around the state here. And I need to be recharged by them. That, yes, I don't know their background, but I know one thing about them. They love Christ like I love Christ. 
And so he, he gives them hope here. You resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that God is doing the same thing in all of his children around the world. And you're not alone. You feel alone, but you're not alone. And the church here is a reminder as you realize I'm struggling here. But where can I really go and get the true relief I need? I trust God's hand. I trust his promises. And part of his promises says here that I have a body of believers here who will love me sacrificially. And I can love sacrificially. And I know this is home. This is true home. We've got to move on to the third instruction. Trust God's plan. Trust God's promises. And trust the promise. Trust the process. Trust the process. Trust the process. What do I mean by that? Trust the process is that the way that your life is unfolding is may not be how you would have liked it to be. It's not how I like to be in all the time. Let's be honest. But what are we called to do? To trust the process. Because look, I, I glossed over this in verse 5. He says to humble yourselves, uh, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? He says there, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. I glossed over that on purpose. Because we often view the Christian life as this, okay, humility is the ultimate purpose, the ultimate end goal, is this humility. But that's not the end that Peter has in mind here. He says, humble yourselves, why? That he may exalt you at the proper time. The end goal is not humility. And yes, we'll be humble all throughout eternity in the presence of Christ. But the ultimate goal here he doesn't have in mind is is not humility. He says, Exalt, exaltation. Humble yourselves, you may be exalted at the right time. That at the end, scripture says, those who endure, those who suffer with Christ will what? Reign with Christ. He says here that, that those who are in Christ, if you suffer for him, there are promises that you will reign with him. The end goal is not just to be humble, just for the sake of being humble, but the end goal is to be humble before God's glory, his presence, his plan, and all things, but understand that the humility is not the end game for us. We will reign with this Christ who will return to the earth, and we will enjoy the glory of his splendor as he rules with the rod of iron, as he eliminates all sin and injustice, and you will reign with him. And then he says, even after in verse 10, he says, after you have suffered just a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You got to trust the process. Why? Because what is God doing? Now, in our Bibles here, now the the word order here is different than what's written in the Greek. And the reason why I'm bringing this out is not just to sound smart. But I think the word order in the Greek and how it was originally written is going to be important to see how should we understand our suffering. All right. So this is why I think it's important to see how is it originally written here? It says here, as I just said, that after you've suffered a little while in verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish you. But literally we can read it. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ after suffering a little while, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Did you catch that? That he begins this verse saying, the God of all grace. In the context of suffering, what does he turn your eyes to? The great God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And then he says here, 
after you suffer just a little while, then he himself, he's going to strengthen and perfect and confirm and establish you. You see the emphasis here? The emphasis here is not on the suffering that seems so big in your life. Your, your struggles and your pain seem so big. But in Peter's eyes here, he says, that's so small in comparison to the God of all grace. And what will this God do? He's going to confirm. He's going to perfect. He's going to establish. He's going to strengthen you. That he will work in you. So you must trust the promise to realize what God is doing in your life is not how you would have written your autobiography. You would not have started off that way. You may not have given yourself the same circumstances you have. You may not have given yourself the struggles that you have, the pain that you have. But God in his grace is working in you, believer, so that you become more like his son and you become more content in the God of all grace who will satisfy you, who will provide for you, who will sustain you, and who will perfect you. And do you believe that, believer? Is this what you preach to yourself in your down days? Believer, I'm talking to believer. Do, do you preach this to yourself? Do you remind yourself of this God who has a great plan? Do you remind yourself of this God and his promises? Do you remind yourself of the God and his process of sanctification for you? Because if you do this, believer, this is how we pursue humility, by bowing down in our heart before God, not saying, Lord, this is how I would have it, but I trust you and I submit to you and I trust your plan. I believe your promises and I trust your process. Is this how you counsel your soul? Do you counsel your soul this way? Is this what we look at? Because if this promise wasn't true, then you should feel hopeless. You hear me? That if this was not in scripture, then you have every reason to feel hopeless about your life. You have every reason to be an anxious mess. You have every reason to be depressed as all out. You have every reason to feel like there's no hope. If this were not here, you have every reason to question everything. But it's here. And do you trust his plan? You trust his promises? Do you trust his process? You trust this great God? That humility moves away from self and looks at the greatness of God. Let's say one last thing here. <clears throat> There may be some of you who did come to camp. And like I said, maybe you did have some just troubling circumstances in your life right now. And you have some struggles in your life that are painful, that are weighing upon you. And maybe no one knows. And maybe like you hear this message and you hear about how good Jesus is. But for you, you just don't feel that. And you've never felt that. That this God that you know that you should love, you just don't. And you never truly have had affections for this Jesus. You know what God sometimes does? That sometimes he gives you circumstances that will break you and bring you down to your knees. And give you the pain that seems so unbearable. So that you will see that your only hope the whole time has been the Jesus that you've never truly looked upon. And if that's you this evening, that God has sovereignly placed painful things in your life, whether it be family, personal issues, health issues, friends, I don't know what it is. He may have leveled your feet, your feet to the ground and you came here. He may have done that 
that you are truly humbled to see the glory of Jesus. And if that's you, I want you to hear this message that this Jesus who is so good, is so kind and so merciful says, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. That you need rest and that rest can't be found in any of the things that you're searching for, but this Jesus who is so good. And you may have heard about how good he is, but you haven't tasted. But this evening, you can taste of this Jesus, which you come to him in humility. And you say, Lord, I've tried in my own way to get the things that I want. And I've fallen every single time. Everyone's let me down. There is no hope. But Jesus, I hear that you are good. And you said that you died on the cross so that anyone who comes to you will be saved and washed and cleansed and will be brought up with you in eternity. And I believe your promises. And I submit to you, Christ, that you bore the wrath of my place come to this Jesus tonight and he will readily accept you no matter where you find yourself believer no matter what pain you are going through if we're looking at how we should respond because of our salvation we respond in humility because this same good Jesus whom you have tasted already who you know to be good is still good today and will be good tomorrow forevermore so trust his plan trust his promises and trust the process Let's pray. Father God, we do trust you and we believe you to be good. And Lord, if we're honest, we realize that we are so prone to look at ourselves. We are so prone to look at our circumstances and see how big our problems are. And Lord, we are so weak and fragile. And I'm so thankful for the promises of Christ. That even though we are weak in faith, Lord, you're faithful. I'm so thankful, Lord, for the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, as we reflect upon these things, that you would work in us. And, Lord, I do pray for any soul in here this evening who does not know Jesus and the saving of their sins, that tonight will be the night of their salvation because they see your glory and your greatness. And may they be humbled by it. And, Lord, all of us, may we be humbled by the glory of Jesus to see how good, how sovereign, how awesome he is, and to grow in this humility. For his sake and your glory. Amen.